Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. You can find all of our sermons at holycommunion.net and our Facebook, YouTube, and podcast channels. Consider hitting like or subscribe. Consider sharing this sermon with others. It helps us to reach more people like you. We are so thankful to those who support our ministry. You can give today at holycommunion.net backslash give. It is good to come home. For those of you who have been around Holy Communion for a while, you'll know this is my home parish. I've been away for almost two years, serving in a diaconal internship out at St. Francis Episcopal Church. It's the same role that Loretta has been playing here. Loretta and I are both going to be ordained on June 3rd down at the cathedral. I'm grateful to Mike Angel my Holy Communion small group, my discernment committees, and the entire parish of, uh, in, so, in so many ways. Uh, you've walked with me on my journey of formation in words that can't capture my true appreciation. Thank you. On this fifth Sunday of Easter, we are well into Eastertide. In this season, our lectionary drops the Old Testament reading in favor of a reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chronicles the evolution of the church following Jesus' resurrection and the ascension. This is not the institutional church we know today, but the earliest days of the Jesus movement, an intimate community of outsiders at the margin of the religious, political, and economic mainstream of their day. Today we heard about the martyrdom of St. Stephen, one of the church's original seven deacons. This tragedy comes at a turning point in the life of this growing community. Tensions are building. The mainline Jewish community is struggling with the proclamations made about Jesus by the Jesus movement. They struggled with the reality of the resurrection proclaimed in St. Stephen's vision of the risen Lord. In a few more verses following today's reading in Acts, we hear the following. At that time, the church in Jerusalem began to be subjected to vicious harassment. Everyone except the apostles was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some pious men buried Stephen and deeply grieved over him. Saul began to wreak havoc against the church. Entering one house after another, he would drag off both men and women and throw them in prison. The danger we hear recounted in these stories from Acts may seem distant, just another story from the past. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure you think it's just another story from the past either. Religiously driven political officials in our state are hell-bent on preventing gender non-conforming children from getting access to the medical care that's essential to allowing them to become the individuals, their parents, and they know that they are. These same public officials are seeking to make it possible to bring concealed weapons onto public transportation and into houses of worship, regardless of whether those houses of worship believe that's possible, let alone concealed weapons. Headlines this last week announced that four members of the far-right Proud Boys have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for their actions on January 6th, you may recall a, port, a report from earlier in the year by the Freedom From Religion Foundation that proves, provides a comprehensive look at the way Christian nationalism motivated 
and permeated the January 6th insurrection. The danger we hear recounted in these stories from Acts may seem distant, just another story from the past. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure you may think that either. I've been wondering how these earliest Christians managed to hang on to their faith given the challenges and outright hostility that came their way. I've also been wondering if there is some wisdom in their story of faith and perseverance that might help us in the Jesus movement move the Jesus movement forward today, mindful of our own challenges and, unfortunately, outright hostility that may come our way. The first verse of today's gospel points us in the direction of that wisdom. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. This verse comes from the very beginning of Jesus' farewell discourse in John's gospel. Jesus is preparing his beloved disciples for to live after his death and in the wake of his crucifixion. Jesus is sharing some essential advice, advice the disciples, who are now apostles, heard firsthand and would have taken to heart. Our first century sisters and brothers faced the uncertainty of life after Jesus' death and the uncertainty of the turbulent time with a faith that was grounded in a radical trust in God and a radical trust in Jesus. Grounding faith in radical trust is vastly different than grounding faith in belief. The translation of this verse in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible goes like this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Are we to trust or believe? Old Testament scholar Peter Enns, in his book, The Sin of Certainty, offers a compelling look at the difference between trusting in God and believing in God. He looks at these two modes of faith through the lens of church history, the Bible, and his own life experience. Paraphrasing ends, he argues that the Bible does not model a faith that depends on belief or the certainty of right belief that is central to many Christians. He bases this view on the simple fact that the Bible does not provide that kind of certainty nor does it give us a concise, ready-to-check-off list of right beliefs. Instead, the Bible, in all its messy diversity, models trust in God. Trust that does not rest on whether we are able to be clear or certain about what we believe. Every time you read the words belief and trust in the Bible, ends reminds us that we, they are just different ways of saying trust. Now, let me be clear, trusting in God, trusting in Jesus, in the radical way we see demonstrated in Acts is a tall order. It calls on us to let go and let God, a cliche that may seem shallow on the surface, but is exactly what our first century siblings did. The witness of Scripture is clear. Radical trust in God, in Jesus, is what our forebearers relied on to navigate the turbulent process of building a community inspired by the reality and hope of the resurrection. Grounding our faith in trust is a tall order. It's a tall order because the witness of Scripture reminds us that God sustains those who trust in God, 
God fulfills God's promises to those who trust in God, one agonizing step at a time. Have you ever noticed this frustrating, at least to me, reality about how God works? Israel's Exodus story is a great example. The story figures actually quite prominently in the passionate confession of faith that St. Stephen's recounts in front of the Jerusalem Council, a confession that angered them so much it resulted in his martyrdom. A persistent tension in the Exodus story is the fact that God leads Israel out of Egypt, through the Jordan, and across the desert, one agonizing step at a time. One agonizing step at a time over 40 years. Remember the drama on the banks of the River Jordan? Israel is between a rock and a hard place. Pharaoh's army is coming up full steam behind them, and in front of them is a body of water they cannot possibly cross. Let me share a few verses from Exodus to refresh our memories about this scene. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to, the, to die in the desert? It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. How does Moses answer this complaint? But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You, you just keep still. Then how does God speak to Moses? Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. As for you, lift up your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. This dramatic moment, when lives were at stake, who saw what God was about to do? No one, not the Israelites, not the Egyptians, not even Moses. Yet God enables a way forward that no one imagined possible. God enables a way forward that no one imagined possible. I love the matter-of-fact tone given to God in this translation. What is everybody complaining about? Don't just stand there. Get moving. I'm giving you a way forward. Trusting that God will give you, me, us a way forward is the kind of radical trust our sisters and brothers in the first century relied on to keep moving, to regroup after they were scattered, and to preserve, persevere, and proclaim Christ's resurrection, the very claim that got St. Stephen's martyred. Cultivating this level of radical trust in God and Jesus is not something that any one of us can muster in every moment. Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross to trust in God. Cultivating this level of radical trust in God and in Jesus is developed and renewed over our lives through consistent spiritual practice as we continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Cultivating this level of radical trust in God and in Jesus is always done in the context of community just as our siblings did in the early church, 
we support and encourage each other as we wait faithfully on that next, at times agonizing, step forward in the fulfillment of God's promise. I'm afraid this sermon has been a bit sobering, yet this is Eastertide, 50 days to celebrate, consider, and reflect on the resurrection, God's greatest act of loving kindness that transforms the very reality of nature with new life, hope, and joy. So what about joy? Let me conclude with a brief story that lifts up the joy of Easter without being naive about the need to cultivate a radical trust in God and in Jesus as we face the challenges and hostility of our own day. The story belongs to the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, senior pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, and it's from his new book, Dancing in the Darkness. The story needs a little bit of brief context. So, 2008, Reverend Moss has just been installed as a new senior pastor at Trinity when the 2001 sermons of Trinity's former senior pastor, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, became cannon fodder for those seeking to discredit Senator Barack Obama's presidential bid. Reverend Moss and Trinity became the epicenter of this firestorm. Death threats poured in. Bomb-sniffing dogs swept the church every Sunday morning. The secure, a security detail shadowed Reverend Moss's children to school. This tense backdrop was the first thing that crossed Reverend Moss's mind when he woke up to a noise in the house at three in the morning. As the fog of sleep cleared with his rising concern, Reverend Moss reached for, as he called it, his rod and staff, which comforts him, a Louisville slugger baseball bat. He left the bedroom quietly listening for the noise, preparing himself to do whatever was necessary to defend his family. He held back a rising rage that someone ginned up on the political rhetoric that was fueling the firestorm outside his church was inside his house. He hears the noise again. It comes from his five-year-old daughter's room. He pushes the door open slowly and peers in to see his daughter dancing in the middle of the room pigtails flying. As soon as she sees her dad, she lights up and yells, Daddy, I'm dancing. I'm dancing. As he put down the baseball bat and lowered his voice, as dads do as they're about to chasten their kids, the Holy Spirit stopped him in his tracks, saying, Look at your daughter. Look. Your daughter is dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but it is not in her. Learn to dance in the darkness just like her. Like all stories involving the Holy Spirit, it keeps on speaking. It spoke to me and it just might be speaking to us this morning. If we're going to have the courage to cultivate a radical trust in God and in Jesus, to face the challenges and hostilities of our day, I'm convinced we need to rediscover the joy Reverend Moss's daughter showed her dad in the face of darkness. Today, I'm encouraging us to do the work to cultivate a radical trust in God and in Jesus. I'm also encouraging us to be joyful as we do that work. 
Let's do something Holy Communion may do better than most. Let's kick up our heels, let our pig tails fly, and dance in the darkness as we proclaim, Christ is risen. Christ has risen indeed. Amen.